opinions expressed on ACB Media are those of the content creators and should not be assumed to reflect product endorsements or the views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Our first speaker and the person who will take up um, much of our first session and uh, Ms. Campsey, please feel free to take 20 or even 25 minutes with your presentation if you'd like to, because one of the speakers who we had planned for for this session is not going to be with us. So um, the, the person who I'm going to introduce has sort of made some significant waves, at least I think so, uh, in terms of our understanding of some of the early history of Braille. And those of you who are here for this presentation, I think are going to be in for a treat <clears throat> because Professor Campsey from the University of Toronto has done a good deal of work on the life and, uh, and early history of Braille. And in particular, um, dealing with some of the issues surrounding uh, how the initial code uh, came to be a part of Braille. And so we're looking forward to hearing from her. I've, I've in fact read some transcripts and listened to some podcasts. And I think that all of you will be extremely excited as I was by the presentation we're about to hear. So Professor Philippa Campsey from the University of Toronto, the floor is yours. Thank you very much. And uh, exactly 201 years ago, people who were visually impaired first started communicating with raised dots. So that's 1821. And the first group to use this method of communication were students in Paris at what was called the School for Blind Youth. And they were learning to read and to write using an odd and unusual code. Not Braille, not the one you use now. Up to that point, the only way they could read documents was by tracing letters in cursive script. It was raised. Um, it was very difficult to do. Um, it was all loops and circles and things. And cursive writing is kind of rare these days, but uh, anyway, that was the, that was the form that was, had been introduced at the school and that was the only way they could read. And as for writing, a few of them did master the skill of tracing ordinary letters with a pencil in a way that sighted people could read, but they could not write in a way that they could read back to themselves. So imagine the situation. They can't take notes in class. They can't write to other people who are also blind. They can't just capture their thoughts and ideas on paper. They have to rely on their memories for everything they learn or want to retain, or they have to rely on other people. So think how difficult school would be if you had to memorize everything and you couldn't take notes. All that changed in 1821. A man called Charles Barbier wrote to the school director and offered him a system of writing for people who were blind. Now, you may have heard that he, this man invented his system for communications among the military at night. 
It turns out that's a myth. Uh, it was the fanciful idea of a writer in the 1950s. He had never read anything that Barbier had written about his own invention um, and thought maybe that was what he, he had in mind, but uh, he didn't know. And Barbier wasn't, that wasn't Barbier's intention at all. No, the evidence is quite clear that Charles Barbier invented this type of writing specifically for people who were blind or visually impaired. Now, I started to learn about this story in 2016. My husband and I were visiting the museum at the Association Valentin Aoui in Paris. This is a museum, a very specific museum, devoted to the history of the education of people who were blind. And it was while my husband was there to um, study uh, the technologies, um, the various different typewriters and braille writers and other uh, machines that were available to help with communication. Um, and I was just looking around the museum and I became interested in Charles Barbier. I found some information about him there and I wanted to know more about his contribution to uh, what is now known as Braille. So I went and spoke to the museum curator and she showed me some documents he had written, including letters and publications. The documents were kept in a big box in the museum and other than the curator, it seems nobody had ever looked at them. Already, I was, I was quite interested. I didn't actually set out to challenge the popular story of the invention of Braille. I was just curious to read 200-year-old documents about a mysterious man who was the first person to come up with the original idea of communicating with raised dots in a form of code. But as I went through the letters and the publications in the box, I became aware that they told a very different story from the one that has been told over and over in popular accounts of the invention of Braille. So what was in that box? The oldest document in it dated from about 1809, the most recent one from 1841. So all early, early 19th century. There were dozens and dozens of handwritten letters, some from Braille, some to him, and many printed posters and leaflets and small books. But one of the most important items was a little book. It was bound in green, a little hardcover book, and published in 1815 in Paris. It took me a while to grasp what it really what it was all about. And that's, I mean, it was in French, and I read more slowly in French. But it took a while for the penny to draw. But as I worked my way through that little book, I realized that Charles Barbier had a very ambitious idea and plan, and it had nothing whatever to do with military communications. What he wanted to do was to create a simplified method of reading and writing for all of those who did not have access to formal education. He believed in universal education and universal literacy. Now, within this group, he included people who were blind because they did not, except for the, the students at this school, most of them had no access to formal education. And so they were one of the group, but his plan was for everybody in that group, all the people who didn't have access to formal education, to try and come up with a simplified way of writing for them. So back in 1815, He's pretty much talking about half the population of France. 
uh, unable to read or write. Some, a few knew how to read, but did not know how to write because that's a separate set of skills and it takes a long time to develop. So he thought that if he came up with this simple method, people would be able to capture their thoughts and keep simple records without the long process of formal education that's required. He knew that people who had to work for a living from a young age did not have the time or resources for all the years it took to learn how to read and write. Think how many years it took all of us to learn how to read and write. So this little green book contained 12 different methods of written communications aimed at different audiences. And there were some variations on those methods, but basically 12 methods. But they're all based on the same approach. So I want you to imagine a grid of five squares by five squares, totaling 25 squares or cells. And into this grid, RBA simply put the letters of the alphabet. Now, some of you will think, but there are 26 letters in the alphabet. But in fact, in France at the time, the letter W was seldom if ever used and was not considered part of the alphabet. So you take out the letter W and the alphabet fits very neatly into this grid. Then Barbier numbered across the top. He he numbered the columns across the top and and down the side, he numbered the rows. So each cell in the grid could be identified by a two-digit number, the row number and the column number. So the letter A, of course, in the very first position was row one, column one. The letter B was row one, column two, all the way down to Z, which would be row five, column five. My own initial P uh, would be row four, column one. So this meant that every letter of the alphabet was translated into a two-digit number. A was 1-1, one, one. E was 1-2, Z was 5-5, five, five. P would be 4-1. And actually, if, even if you can't remember the numbers, you can always count it out on your fingers. It was that simple. Now, that was okay if you already knew the alphabet, but Barbier knew that people who had no formal schooling did not know the alphabet in the first place. So he offered a second grid, which was a a set of phonetic sounds. He identified 30 sounds in the French language, um, and he put them in five rows and six columns. But the same principle applied. Every sound in that 30-cell grid corresponded to a two-digit number representing the row and the column. And in this little book, Barbier offered a dozen different ways to turn those two-digit numbers representing letters or sounds into simplified forms of writing. Each number was represented by a symbol, and a combination of the two symbols made up a letter or a sound. The very first um, uh, diagram in the book just used straight lines oriented in different directions to represent the numbers. And a combination of two of these lines in different directions created the letter. Obviously, the result didn't look at anything like conventional writing, but this method did not require people to master the complications of forming 25 or 26 unique shapes 
a skill that takes years to learn properly. Um, even if they've never held a pen before, they could, they could easily do a little straight line. Now, the one with the raised dots was quite distinctive. That's actually in plate number seven of the book. And it includes an illustration of the little tool that would be needed, which is not a pen, obviously. Um, it's a little blunt punch that you would use to press the dot into the paper. This is actually the simplest of all the methods because all you had to do was count the dots. Um, they would be lined up vertically side by side. Um, so my initial P would be four little dots lined up vertically, followed by one dot right beside it. And together, the two of them would represent the letter P, which is uh, the fourth row, the first column. Now, Barbier also created equipment, tools, to allow people to use this method. Uh, the fir very first one was a long wooden ruler with six grooves in it. And you would put, place the paper over this wooden ruler and press the dots into where the lines were. And you also had another little guide that would allow you to line them up correctly and vertically. And then, of course, the third tool was the little punch. Over time, these, these tools were changed and modified and streamlined, but that was, those were the original ones. Now, Barbier himself never came to the school to demonstrate the method. Um, actually, it, it, this was all happening in the summer of 1821, and he was in the, uh, in the middle of a move. He was moving from Paris to Versailles, um, which is just, it's a, it's a town just outside the city. So he, all he did was he sent along the instructions and he sent along the tools. And the director at the school assigned a senior student to learn the system and teach it to others. It's actually a really smart approach, but, you know, what's called sort of peer-to-peer -peer learning um, but having somebody who, who becomes familiar with something teach it to others rather than having an outsider come in. Once the students had learned the method, they, uh, they did a demonstration for the school governors. This involved two students. The first one was sent out of the room, and the second one was asked to use Barbier's method to take dictation of a text that was chosen at random by one of the governors. Then the first student would come back into the room and read the text back simply by touching the dots uh, with the fingers and reading the letters letter by letter. This demonstration was very successful and the method was accepted for use at the school. It was simple. It was in many ways kind of crude, but it worked. It worked. And the students loved it. They could do all of those things that I mentioned before that they couldn't do. They could take notes. They could write messages to other students. They could capture their thoughts on paper and read them back later. So imagine the difference. A huge, huge change in their lives. Now, it's worth noting that this is a school. The students were learning to read. Um, they were learning to read and form letters, and they knew the alphabet. So there was no need of them for them to use the phonetic approach. This is clear that they, they use the alphabet, um, and this is clear from letters exchanged between Barbier and the director of the school. Now, many of those who have written about the invention of Braille have stressed all the deficiency of Barbier's system. It took up too much space. It didn't have symbols for music or punctuation. 
But that's not really very good history. That's 2020 hindsight. Think of all the inventions that have started out clunky and without all the features that come later. For example, I think of the first cell phones, which were large, and the only thing they could do was send and receive calls. Now, if you compare them with what came later, they look pretty pathetic and dated. But if you compare them with what came before, when the only way you could make a call was from a landline, which is either the the phone in your home or a payphone somewhere, that was amazing and liberating to have that ability to make a call from anywhere. So it's the same with Barbier's invention. Suddenly, the students at the school could do what they'd never done before. And okay, it was awkward and it was clumsy, but it it was a big improvement on the versions of reading and writing that had come before, trying to trace cursive script with your finger and only being able to write for sighted people. It also meant that they had a way of communicating privately, which was, again, something new. Before, they needed teachers to help them to provide everything for them with the tools. And one of the things that Barbier did was he gave away hundreds and hundreds of sets of tools in order to make this accessible. People could communicate privately. They could make a private note or almost keep a diary or something like that that they didn't necessarily want other people to read. And they could write privately to other students. So that was something really big. Now, the genius of Louis Braille was to take that awkward, clumsy system and make it something streamlined and flexible, a bit the way Steve Jobs at Apple took the first clumsy cell phones and over time transformed them into smartphones. Now, it took Braille 16 years to perfect his new system. The first version, which he published in 1829, is not quite the system we have now. Um, It had many of the features, but it used dots and dashes and users found it very confusing so he spent another eight years and took away the dashes and replaced them with dots and then we have the system that is used today so as they say it takes years to become an overnight sensation (laughs) 16 years in his case and even then, it took many more, more years before his system was uh, fully accepted by those who ran the school um, and also elsewhere outside Paris. Now, Braille is to be commended for the persistence with which he pursued his, his idea for a really workable, flexible form of communication with raised dots. But he wouldn't have got started if he hadn't had these tools put into his hand and a working method um, given to him to start with. So he could, he could take notes as he, as he went along. Even before he developed his own system, he could, when he was thinking about what he wanted to do, he could take notes. Now, in, during the course of this research and reading all these letters, and I must say it took me a while to become comfortable with reading a 200-year-old handwritten French. Um, But one of the other things I found was that all the modern stories um, describe a scene in which Charles Barbier and Louis Braille meet when Braille is very young and Charles Barbier is much older. And at this meeting, Braille points out the things he thinks are wrong 
and Barbier reacts. Generally, he's uh, uh, portrayed as reacting badly to this information. But the more I read, the more I realized this meeting never took place. It's a complete invention. Here's what really happened. In 1833, which is four years after Braille had published his first version of his method, Barbier learned about it. He got a copy of the book, read it in one evening, and immediately wrote a letter of congratulation to Braille. By that time, Braille was already a teacher at the school in his early 20s. The two had never met before, but they became quite friendly, and Braille visited Barbier several times. There are letters between Braille and Barbier and mentions of visits. Barbier recognized that Braille had created something really useful for people who were blind, and he encouraged and supported him. But Barbier also, who was admittedly a little on the obsessive side, um, he was still pursuing his original idea of simplifying reading and writing for everyone, excluded from formal education. He was quite pleased that the students at the School for Blind Youth were using his system, but he actually never saw them as the ideal recipients of his invention. What he wanted was for the students at the school to teach it to other people. He figured they're already at a school. They're already, they've got years to learn reading and writing in a variety of different methods. They're privileged compared to the people that he wanted to help. So he thought using that privilege, they could learn this method and go out and teach it. Now, he, he was kind of stubborn about this. This is, and, and it's also why he kept saying that the phonetic approach, you, you needed to learn the phonetic approach because he figured that would be the one that you would go and teach other people who hadn't learned to read before. So he went on and on about it. And there are letters and the director of the school, a man called Alexandre René Pignet, uh, you could tell was starting to get just a little tired of all this because this is not, this was not what he had in mind. He wanted the students at the school to go and take their place in society as literate members of society um, and, you know, using conventional spelling and contributing to society by using all the methods that society was familiar with, not these crazy ones. They would phonetic spelling and strange looking letters. Uh, he supported Braille, Braille's idea, absolutely. Uh, he was 100% behind Braille. But uh, he thought Barbier was just a, a cranky old so-and-so, and, -so, and uh, he was not very polite to him. So, and it was also Pinier who was the one who went on and on about the deficiencies of Barbier's method. And that what he, he kept saying that what Braille has come up with is, is a brand new invention. It's not simply an improvement on the method, which I think is debatable. So he's the one who invented this completely fictional story of the early meeting between Braille and Barbier. He was writing after both of them were dead. Uh, Barbier died in the early 40s. Braille died in the early 50s. So they couldn't contradict him. So he invented this story about a confrontation between the two to make Barbier look bad and Braille look better. Now, he honestly didn't need to do that because Braille's 
place in history was already quite well assured. Um, the extent of his gifts were well known. Um, so he's, he's kind of gilding the lily to try and make Braille look even better than he really was. So he's, and he's also, he's also trying to downplay um, the contribution made by Barbier. But the fact is that without, without the original idea raised dots in a code, in a code that didn't even remotely attempt to reproduce the shapes of the letter forms in the conventional alphabet, plus those tools. Without all of that, as a starting point, Braille probably could not have done what he did. Now, somebody else might have come up with it, but uh, it just happened to be Barbier and Braille benefited a couple of weeks ago, uh, there was a ceremony for Louis Braille at the Pantheon in Paris, where France honors its greatest writers and artists and scientists and inventors. And Braille's achievement is right up there, and he deserves to be honored in that way. He's, he's, his body was moved from his hometown to be buried in the Pantheon in 1952. But we can spare a thought for this, the odd, obsessive Barbier who came up with a really brilliant original idea. In fact, it was so brilliant, he didn't actually recognize how brilliant it was. And he created the tools to make it work. Now, he's buried in a Paris cemetery, um, and his tomb is rather neglected, though I, when I went, I did try to clean it up a bit. Invention is often portrayed as a product of solitary endeavor, when in fact it is most often the result of collaboration and cooperation. Think of all the people who have contributed to the features that are now common on smartphones, for example. Lots and lots of them. When Braille was working on his system, he benefited from the feedback and suggestions of his friends and schoolmates and his colleagues and from Pinier himself. He wasn't working in a vacuum, but he was surrounded by people who wanted him to succeed. And they included Barbier. So we need to start thinking of Barbier and Braille as joint contributors to the invention of what is now simply called Braille. Barbier was the inventor who had the initial idea. And Braille was the improver who took that idea and made it into something flexible, elegant, and universal. Thank you very much. I am fascinated by the concept that Barbier's system Ironically, the one developed for people to even make sounds, we might actually, do you think that Braille would have, the the system could have been promoted and we might all today be reading with with that system had uh, people understood what it was really for and educating the masses? Well, there's a complicated history and... Unfortunately, I would say that the weight of tradition often squelches efforts. There have been things like um, simplified spelling. Uh, John Dewey in the United States tried to, uh, tried, and in some cases succeeded in simplifying spelling to the point that the spelling in the United States is often simpler than elsewhere. There have been efforts at universal languages such as Esperanto, um, but they have tended Uh, to fizzle out because of all the people who have invested so much time 
and so many resources in learning conventional literacy um, that these other efforts never really get a foothold. Um, so it's, it's an interesting idea. Um, one of the other things that Barbier says in the introduction to his book, he says, we've got, we've got the wrong alphabet, basically. The alphabet is, causes more confusion because in an ideal alphabet, you would have one sound for, for one symbol, no exceptions. Instead, um, many letters can be pronounced in more than one way. There are certain duplicates, um, so you can get the S sound with either a, a, a C or an S uh, or even a Z sound. They, and there are a number of sounds that aren't represented at all and that you have to create using more than one letter. Like my, my, first, my first name is Philippa, and you create that with PH. Barbie, of course, would say, why don't you use an F? But anyway, um, so there are all kinds of efforts at language reform that have never really um, become widespread and mainstream. Excellent. Judy? This is Judy Dixon here. Hi. Uh, Interesting question, Judy Wilkinson. And I think that I want to make a point about this as well, because there's another reason why Barbier's system would not have been ideal for us to read, and that is its physical dimensions. Um, If you have a cell that is five, five or six dots high, it's not possible for the human finger to read it horizontally like we do Braille. The really elegant thing that, that Louis did for us, and I, 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 Terry Kelly's uh, word, he finger-sized it. And uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the Canadian musician who wrote a song about Louis Braille on the occasion of his 200th birth, birthday, but he, 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 Terry talks about Louis finger-sizing the, the cell, and, and he made it so that we can read it in one smooth horizontal motion. And we wouldn't be able to do that with a five or six dot high cell. No, Barbier's, Barbier's system was actually a perfect transitional system. Transitional between the methods they'd been using before and what came later. What it did have going for it, it was, as I said, clunky, but it was really easy. And if you already knew the alphabet, you could learn it in less than a day. As I say, if you couldn't remember where you were in the grid, you could count on your fingers and find the two things and then punch out the dots. The other thing it had... it, it, It takes much longer to learn Braille. The other thing it had going for it, I'm not so sure it does, because I think you could learn Braille, also the Braille alphabet in an hour. But the other thing (laughs) it had going for it. I couldn't. I tried. (laughs) (laughs) The other thing it had going for it is that blind people could write it. And and blind people couldn't write the raised print systems Mm -hmm. that were used. And that was a huge thing once blind people could actually write and read what they had written. Moreover... Because it was all just counting the dots, um, writing from right to left and reading from right to right, right to uh, from left to right, wasn't as much of an issue. 
Um, you didn't have to know the letter. It wasn't a matter of letter forms. It was a matter of counting dots. So, yes, it was, it was clunky and crude, but it did the job, and it served as the springboard for a much better system. But without that springboard, I, I don't think you could go straight from zero to Braille. Anisio? I, I'm curious uh, if the professor would, uh, in your research, the research you did at the museum, and you mentioned the letters that were written, the correspondence mm-hmm. between Louis Braille and Barbier, were any of those letters um, written with Barbier's system, or how, how was Louis Braille communicating? No, interestingly enough, Louis Braille was one of the few people in the student, in, among the students who knew how to write to sighted people. He wrote to his parents quite often. He mastered the, the writing um, uh, for sighted people quite well. He also developed, developed, and this is sort of getting way off topic, but he also developed something called Decapoint or Decapoint, um, which was a system, it used raised dots, but what it produced looked like ordinary letters. It was incredibly complicated and it took forever to write anything in it. But you could write, he created this system that blended um, the traditional alphabet plus raised points so that both a person who is blind and a sighted person could read it. Um, if you, there's probably, there's probably, um, uh, material about Decapoint, and um, if you can't find it, I could probably find some for you. But uh, uh, in the book by Michael Meller about Louis Braille, I believe there is an touch of genius. <laughs> yeah, Judy also says it's called Balou, B A L O U, apparently. B A L O U. Excuse me, okay. I can't even spell. There's a nine dot and a. Yeah, so the, it was called Decapoint, Deca for ten, because it was ten dots high. So the letters were quite big, um, but uh, and you used a special machine for it. It wasn't um, you could do it by hand, but that would take even longer. But uh, there was a special machine uh, that he produced for creating this type of writing. But oddly enough, very few. Uh, th- there's very little available that's still in in Barbier's original. Somebody put together a book, um, sort of a kind of an anthology of little little uh, excerpts um, using Bra- uh, using Barbier's original system. But it's very rare to find anything written in Barbier now. Most of it's lost. And Byington? Um, I would like I would like to borrow your presentation for our state convention, but I don't want to violate any copyright laws. Has this <laughs> research already been published or can we yes. borrow it or what? Yes, um, there are a number of things you can find online. And so the first place to look where I, where I first sort of put this stuff on the map was um, the journal, uh, uh, the Disability Studies Quarterly. That's it. Yeah, the Disability Studies Quarterly. It came out almost exactly a year ago in June of 2021. It's online. You don't need to have a special subscription in order to read it. Also, the Disability History Association created a podcast, and I've also written a blog about it. Um, So there are three things in the public domain with the bulk of this information. Um, And uh, if you need me to send you links, I can do that quite easily. 
And Judy has also and published a blog um, on this subject. So. Even today, we find resistance to Braille uh, in many quarters, including uh, among the parents and families of some uh, blind children who believe somehow that it's stigmatizing uh, or otherwise inferior to other things that might be available in their view. I'm wondering how the uh, introduction of Braille system in the 1830s, let's say, uh, affected uh, in, in the short term, if we know, in a generation or so, the lives of the students who were exposed to it. Yes, that's an interesting question. There are um, they they were they were allowed to use it right away as soon as they had uh, as soon as they had mastered the uh, the technique. Um, they were allowed to use it because, in fact, it speeded up their school studies because they could take notes, and it made it made it easier for them to learn things if they could write it down and read it back. Now, then, over time, as Braille come, came up with his new system, so. Um, in 1821, they started using Barbier at the school. By 1829, uh, eight years later, Braille has his own system, which was uh, published by the school. It was revised, revised extensively and then republished eight years later. But during that time, most of the students um, were, were using Braille because it was faster and and more efficient and better in all kinds of ways. And you, it was way more flexible. You could use it for music. Um, it had, uh, you know, punctuation marks, which uh, Braille didn't have, that sort of thing. So Braille was used at the school for quite some time. And Braille was very strongly supported by the director, Pinier. But then Pinier left. And I'm not, I can't remember offhand when exactly he left. Um, but uh, the fellow who replaced him wanted to get to back to the original ideals of the founder of the school, Valentin Aoui. And Valentin Aoui very much wanted to, he felt he, he had this thing about, you know, the, the systems that, that, that people who are blind should as close as possible approximate the systems used by people who are sighted. Um, and so this, this new guy came in and said, no, we have to go back to all the old systems because they're closer to what sighted people use um, and they're closer to the, the uh, ideals of our founder. That lasted a few years um, and people were inspired. I'm sure that, you know, in secret little corners, people were still using Braille because it was so useful. How could they manage without it? Um, having been exposed to it. But it was suppressed at the school for a while until cooler heads prevailed and they brought it back. Um, then thereafter, it's a long story of sort of struggling to get accepted, struggling against rival methods like New York Point and all sorts of things. Um, but uh, I'm sort of losing myself in my, my train of thought here. But <laughs> anyway, um, they had it, it, it wasn't an easy, um, straightforward path to acceptance of Braille. Um, and I'm sure you know all the, um, you know, the, the problems that I mentioned, one of the reasons I mentioned privacy um, is because Braille can seem threatening to sighted teachers who can't, haven't mastered it. Um, and uh, so it's, and, and the idea that, that the students might be exchanging messages, written messages that a teacher might or might not able to read. 
Um, so there, there was definitely resistance to it, and it took a while before people realized that it was that it, the advantages far, far outweighed any possible disadvantages. Hello, thank you so much for the interesting presentation, and I would like to know if the French and also English translation of the letters that, to which you referred are available in the places that you mentioned, or and by that I mean the more of the totality and not just snippets of the letters? Uh, yes, good question. Um, and the answer is sort of no. Um, the letters... The Valentin Aoui Museum, where I did a lot of the work, um, if you can go there, the letters, some of the, some of the letters are there, um, and you can go, you need to get a volunteer to let you in, and they haven't, I have translated things for my own use, um, but uh, they have not been translated, and in some cases not even transcribed. And the, the other thing is that I have both sides of the correspondence because the, the letters in, in the museum are those that were in Barbier's possession at the time of his death, which is mostly letters to him and a few rough copies of letters that he sent, plus all of his publications. However, the school has all the letters that he sent to the school. Um, and when I went there, I was not even allowed to photocopy or photograph everything. The only thing I could do was transcribe. So I went in with a friend and she read and I typed as fast as I could. Um, and we didn't get everything. We got what we thought were probably the most important ones. I'm hoping to get back to Paris. Um, there's a new librarian. I'm hoping might uh, be a little, little uh, more um, easy to work with. And uh, so we'll see. But no, they don't. Um, the only the only transcriptions uh, there are some in those institutions, and I have the ones that I made myself, and I have some translations of the bits that I've used in my research. Um, but there's at the moment no English French edition available. Stay tuned. So my question. Um, since I'm going to take pride of privilege here, um, relates to the relationship between uh, Louis Braille and Michel Brabier. And the question is essentially, you characterized Barbier as, as being very supportive of Louis Braille. Do we have indi any indication of uh, how Louis Braille felt about Barbier? I think think Louis Braille probably thought he was, you know, an, a, a kind of nice old codger. Um, they they had different opinions on a number of issues, but they were friendly disagreements. Um, Braille always, always acknowledged Barbier in his work. Um, the, this, this business about Barbier having created it uh, for the military if people actually read what Braille has written, and surely to goodness that exists in other languages as well, he says very clearly, you know, I owe a great debt of thanks to Charles Barbier, who invented this system specifically for the blind. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm sort of building on his achievement. So whatever he may, might have felt personally about Barbier, who, as I said, was, was kind of a difficult man sometimes and very keen on his own ideas. 
But Braille never failed to acknowledge his debt to Barbier for having come up with the original kind of whack on the side of the head that set everything off in a different direction. Um, it's about raised dots. It's about code. It's not any of these other things that people have been trying. Next is Debbie Hazelton. Hello. Thank you. What a, a fascinating presentation. I I think I only began to hear of uh, hmm, Barbier, I believe, Um, Uh like maybe a week ago. I had not heard this. I'm curious about how they wrote because um, I hear a lot of, oh, they wrote back and forth. And I'm imagining, you know, early slates. Um, But, yeah, I'd like to hear more about how they actually accomplished writing thank you but when you say they who who do you mean well any of them i mean they were writing back and forth and uh students mm-hmm. were writing learning to write and so how did they accomplish this well before before the barbier system and then braille um they did have a way of writing um i think it was using paper that had slightly raised lines on it so that enabled mm-hmm. them to follow where the, the the lines are and you still mm-hmm. see sometimes in in you know primary schools this kind of thing where where, where they can the, the students can actually follow the lines um, or they're encouraged to use a, a ruler and write so that every the bottom of every letter touches the ruler so that the lines are straight and they don't head off in all directions um, so there are there are examples of letters written by Louis Braille. Um, some of them actually there's a, there's a third research institution that is I should mention because they were also very helpful, and that is the Museum of Louis Braille, which is in his birthplace, a place called Coupe which is just to the east of Paris. Um, you can get there on a sort of commuter train. It's 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 a sort of a suburb of Paris. Um, and the house in which Louis Braille grew up is there. They have a museum, um, and they have examples of his writing for sighted people in that museum as well. This is Mary Beth, and uh, like everybody else, thank you so much for this fascinating presentation. Two, two sort of related questions. Um, so how did this military thing then become so, like, entrenched? And have you gotten much pushback from the proponents of the, it was really the military uh, uh, origin as opposed to the, the um, you know, this other one? Thank you. Okay, well, that's a, that, that's a good question. I'm glad you brought that up. <laughs> um, so the military myth... Um, popped up. It, it doesn't appear any time before the 1950s. Um, Pinier, in his writing about Braille and Barbier, never mentions any of this. And there were various different articles um, in the sort of school magazines and things that mentioned Barbier. Nothing about the military. It turns up for the first time in a book called uh, It's la, la Vie et l'Oeuvre de, de Louis Braille. The, the Life and Work of Louis Braille, written by a guy called Pierre Henri. It only exists in French. I've never seen it translated into English. And there's a there's he he he'd never seen the little green book that I saw. 
clearly. He had no idea. He didn't realize that this was part of a whole bunch of different systems. Um, and this was just one system using the grid. Not He just thought it existed all by itself. He'd never seen the context. He'd never read what, Braille, what Barbier had written about it. Now, he's, he's a, he was a French academic. He himself was blind. Um, but uh, anyway, so he speculated. And in his book, he's pretty clear when he's speculating. Um, but uh, because he didn't know where this thing came from, where this communication with raised dots came from, he had to speculate quite a bit. Um, and he says in the book, and this is my translation, and I've, I've included in the article I wrote, he says this, as a former artillery captain, Barbier had perhaps earlier realized how useful it would be for officers in the field to write messages in the dark and eventually read them with their fingers. Barbier had perhaps earlier realized. So he's just saying, well, you know, he spent some time in the military. This might have crossed his mind. And he's not saying anything more than that. But somehow that one little sentence just sent people off on a wild goose chase. Um, one of the things that I did as part of the research was to investigate Barbie's military career, and he's it, it's short. He was out of the he was out of the military by the time he was twenty five. Um, he left because uh, of the French Revolution. So Henri writes this, and suddenly everybody grabs this idea. Oh, it's really for the military, huh? So there, and then there's a lot of research about, or a lot of writing, I wouldn't call it research because they didn't really do the research, um, but there's a lot of writing and people say things like, you know, opening up the world of the written language to the blind was the furthest thing from the mind of Barbier who devised the basic concept that made it possible. Um, that's from a book called The Unseen Minority, A Social History of Blindness in the United States. So everybody ran away with the idea that Barbier had no intention of helping the blind, and it was all for the military. And you can read version after version, some of them more colorful than others. Um, and yes, there I, I think a number of the people who have written about this supposed uh, connection with the military, um, when I approach them, they're often reluctant to engage. Um, Understandably, um, so yes, there is a bit of there is a bit of pushback, but there is also there are also glimmerings of hope. Um, when I talked to a, a group earlier, I told, told them that one of the first things I did when I got my article published was to go in and fix the Wikipedia article because that's where everybody gets their information. And I also wrote to the Encyclopedia Britannica. And recently I thought, well, let's check back and see what's happened. And yes, the Encyclopedia Britannica has now said, now says that um, it was long thought that uh, this, this form of writing had been developed for the military, but in fact, uh, documentary evidence shows that it was intended all along for blind people. I thought, yes, we're getting somewhere, but it's, it's slow and painful. And a lot of people, a lot of people don't like to be told that they got it wrong. Um, <laughs> you don't make friends that way. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to I'm trying to change the record wherever I see an opportunity to do it. But I know that there's some people who are just 
not going to be thrilled about the idea. Judy has a question. Judy. Thank you, Paul. When I was in 2009 in Paris, UNESCO held a conference to commemorate Louis Brill's 200th birthday. And at that time, I uh, visited the Museum of AVH, and, and I had a question for the curator then. We call the six-dot system that Louis Brill created, we call it Brill. But I strongly suspected that Louis didn't call it Braille. And it turns out that in, 18, in the 1870s, there was a conference, long, long after Louis's death, there was a conference in Paris where it was named Braille. So my question was, what did, they, what did people call it before they called it Braille? And she told me that they called it anaglyphography. You know, without glyphs writing. Philippa, did you come across that word at all? Yes, the term anaglypt. Um, anaglypt, I mean, the first time I came across that word was nothing to do with, with Braille. Anaglypta, anaglypta is a type of wallpaper that has a raised pattern on it. Um, so you may have seen in very old hotels and things like that, kind of ugly wallpaper with a raised pattern on it. Um, but you can touch it and you can feel it. And so anaglypta and anaglypt is uh, a term used for something with raised, something raised on it. And there are books because it, as well as the museum, there is a library attached to the museum with books in a variety of different languages, not just French. Um, and uh, yes, there was one there. And I thought, why are they writing about wallpaper? Um, but it turned out it was about different methods of raised uh, raised writing of, of various kinds, not just dots. Um, they, yeah, they had, to, they had, there were a number of, uh, the, the term used for Barbier's writing, which I don't think he created either. It was given to, uh, given to the writing uh, by um, a journalist, I think. And he called it écriture nocturne, meaning night writing. Um, and there, there are other, there are other terms, psychography, and things like that. Um, you know, one could have a whole <laughs> a whole debate on on all the terms that have been used. Some people, the phonetic term they called sonography, a term that Barbier himself never used. Um, they had a number of different terms for them. I suspect the term night writing contributed to the theory about the military. The military stuff. Yes. I I am sure that people put those two things together. This comment by Pierre Henry. And the references to écriture nocturne. Yes, absolutely. <clears throat> well, Ms. Philip Kempsey, thank you so much for your presentation. This is pretty amazing. Um, and I think that uh, all of us will go away after this presentation and think very hard about how history um, is... Uh, it can be changed when we when we do some pretty effective research. Um, I suspect none of us will have any less regard for Louis Braille, who we will still think of as very important. But interestingly enough, there is a debate that's going on within the American Council of the Blind at the moment.
that specifically relates to uh, whether Braille should be capitalized out of respect for or veneration almost for Louis Braille. Um, uh, some of us um, believe that um, Braille is a form of communication and not a language, and so we don't think it should be. And certainly the history that you've provided us today certainly suggests anyway um, that um, at least some of the credit that Louis Braille has garnered um, is not entirely his. But Ms. Campsey, thank you so much for being here. I have looked forward to this for months and I have not at all been disappointed. Thank you. Um, here is uh, Judy Dixon to talk a little bit about um, some other ways of finding information on the internet about Braille. And I'm going to hand her back this mic because it actually works. Here you are, Judy. And I gave it to him. Thank, yes. thank right. you. Well, this is all really great fun, and uh, I, I, I like it when our notions get challenged, and, and I think it's going to inspire a lot of us to become Braille researchers. Yep. And this is about researching Braille and the best places to do that. I'm going to focus primarily on the U.S., but I will talk briefly at the end about the libraries, there is actually a huge amount of information about Braille. And you have to be careful when you're doing research. There's there's primary sources. You know, this, this letter was actually written by the person that the events happened to, as opposed to he told somebody who told somebody who may have uh, heard something somewhere. So um, there are three primary Braille research libraries in the United States. And they are NLS, the National Library Service for the Blind and Print Disabled of the Library of Congress, APH, and Perkins. And all three of them have a great deal of information. To some degree, it depends on what you're looking for, which library you would go to. The APH library now holds the entire, what used to be called the MC Miguel Library, M-I-G-E-L, which was the library of um, the American Foundation for the Blind. And back in the 70s, when I did my research for my dissertation on daydreams and fantasies of blind and partially sighted men, I... Uh, I'm glad somebody's listening. I, I, I did much, much of my research at the AFB Library and the New York Library of Medicine and the New York Public Library. But the AFB Library has now been transferred to APH. It has its own website. You can go to it at miguel.aph.org. And they also have the Helen Keller archives, which were amassed over many, many decades by AP, AFB. And so if you're looking for information about Helen Keller, or if you're looking in for information about the education of blind people as it relates to writing systems and so forth, the APH library is a good place to go. The Perkins Research Library has archives about um, the teachers of the te the teachers of uh, Helen Keller, um, 
Polly Thompson and and Sullivan. So if you're looking for how Helen Keller was taught, the Perkins Library is a better place to go. Um, back to APH. Um, APH has a couple of other resources. The APH Museum is a wonderful place. Um, again, back in the 1990s, um, I donated 35 Braille writers to them. Um, all from different countries and different eras and different everything. But I told Tuck Tinsley, you can have them if you come get them. So uh, there they were, 350 pounds of Braille Rider went to, went to uh, Louisville. I still have the slates and I have well over 400 slates, 282 unique slates. And the, I do have some from the 1860s. I did in Coupe put my hands on one of Louis Braille's slates. And uh, I also saw a Barbier slate, but I don't have one in my collection. But the collection does have quite a few slates for writing this print system that that Philippa was speaking about. There's an, actually a nine-dot code and a ten-dot code, and it's, it's written so that if you're trying to write an O, you would write a single dot in the middle, and then you'd write a dot above. You'd go to the right and write just a dot above it and a little dot below that, and then you'd go to the right and write another dot above that and below that and to make a circle. So it's it's a it's a not a fixed width font. But anyway, it was quite an interesting thing. They put carbon paper um, in the in the slate. And I don't know how they kept from getting their hands all yucky, but they didn't speak about that. But anyway, the APH Museum has some absolutely fabulous things and some great examples of different kinds of tactile writing. And it's a very fun place to, to go to look at this sort of thing. Um, but the Perkins Research Library is also very, very nice. Um, if you want to email the APH Library, it's resource at aph.org. That's their, their, or you can call them and ask for extension 705. Um, the Research Library at Perkins is the Samuel P. Hayes Research Library. And they have, they can do research for you. They are putting their content in the internet archive. So if you ask them for some document that they have in print, they will scan it for you and put it in the internet archive. And that's how you would have access to it. It's a very good library for academic researchers. And they will search journals for you and that sort of thing. Their email address is hayeslibrary at perkins.org. And the phone number is 617-972-7541. Um, if Ralph is interested, I could do a, an article for the Braille Memorandum with all these. Yeah, with all these. Remind me, please, Ralph. That would be helpful. Um, with all these addresses and phone numbers and so forth. The third library is NLS. And the NLS Reference Library also has access to journals and so forth. The NLS is probably the best source if you're looking for modern things and modern what happened yesterday and last week and how, you know, where can I buy a Braille display or where can I find a Braille watch or where, what are all the sources of Braille calendars, that kind of stuff NLS is especially good at. Um, not so much research, but just current information about Braille and where, you know, where it's used and 
so forth. Um, they're outside the U.S. There are some fabulous research libraries. We've been talking a lot about the one in France, but there are others. The Royal National Institute for Blind People, formerly RNIB, uh, is in the U.K., has a research library. They don't staff it much anymore, and they don't actually actively collect much anymore, but they do still have a lot of um, older things, and they it is kind of possible to um, get it question answered. And that's uh, all I'm going to have to say right now. <laughs>